Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Hello and welcome back to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I hope you had a very merry, a very blessed Christmas, a happy new year, and are ready to dive into 2023. Sincerely, thank you for giving this podcast a listen. I know you have approximately infinity choices. I'm not sure where 2023 will take me or us or this podcast, but I'm excited to find out, and I hope you are too. So we just came through the FIFA World Cup season. I think that's right, right? Soccer or football to the rest of the world. And a team won and lots of teams didn't. I don't know. I'm not a soccer guy. But one thing I do know about soccer is that whenever one of the players manages to put that tiny ball in that huge net, the announcers, if they're worth their salt, will shout, Goal! Until they're about to pass out. Using that as a segue, a transition, not a balancing scooter thing, goals seem to be the one key to life. We're supposed to make New Year's resolutions. Those are goals. Some of us have to make goals at work. We have personal goals. Politicians have goals, usually for evil, and so on. And that, my friends, will be the theme for the first episode in 2023 in what I've decided to call Season 2. So, first we'll goal back to the past, then we'll take goaling seriously, and finally we'll sound like Dr. Evil speaking of goals. Evil goals? Ah, yes. Evil goals. So, don't blink, grab yourself a notebook, and get ready to question everything you thought you knew, because for the first time in 2023, here we goal. Look, I I think I've established the fact that I'm a nerd. Big nerd. Not ashamed of it. Well, I mean, on on here, I'm not ashamed. In real life, I just try to remain quiet and unnoticed, for the nerd shame runs deep. But there are advantages. For one, I'm good with spreadsheets. Now, this may not be a superpower, or one that attracts women, but it does come in handy when deciding what car to buy. A number of years ago, I was in the market for a new, to me, car. I looked up what was available and the type of car I was looking for and the price range I had. I developed a spreadsheet with a number of factors, scored the factors, tallied the scores, and ranked the cars from my best option to my worst. At that time, the 2004 Mazda 3 was my best option. The most reliable, good gas mileage, the size and style I wanted, the price, etc., Well, actually, truth be told, at the time, the brand new Mazda 3 was a better ranking car in my spreadsheet. I didn't want to spend that much, though. But in 2015, I changed my tune, made a new spreadsheet full of new and used cars, ranked them out, and once again, the new Mazda 3 came out on top. So I traded in the 2004 for a brand new 2015 Mazda 3 hatchback, which is what I'm still driving today, 115,000 miles later, with absolutely no problems. I love the car, and eventually I plan on trading that one in on another Mazda 3. Now, this isn't a Mazda commercial, although I'd absolutely recommend you look into them if you're looking for a car, as my anecdotal experience proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're fantastic. 
One thing that makes them a great car company, in my humble yet clearly correct opinion, is that they have a philosophy of connecting the car with the driver, making the car an extension of the human. This was their Zoom Zoom philosophy. Fun, agile, sporty, and natural. The car feels like what you'd expect it to feel like, a natural extension of you. So I came across an article this very day, actually, and in part, I found it to be funny. In part, I thought, how stupid is this? But then after giving it some thought, although I think the engineer that came up with this revolutionary idea is maybe a little clueless about the world around him and the past, the concept, once I thought about it, is really interesting. Found on carbuzz.com, headline, Mazda designed LED turn signals that emulate the human heartbeat. Now, the context of this article is very simple. The article is very short. So this review will be very short also. But like I said, I think it's interesting. Now, as I'm sure you're aware, lighting everywhere is going away from the old-style incandescent bulbs with the little thin wire filament in the glass bulb to LEDs, light-emitting diodes. Now, a diode is basically nothing but a one-way check valve. In other words, it only allows electricity to flow in one direction. Based on the nature of the diode and the flow of electrons between atoms, just, just hang in there with me for a second, when power is applied to a diode, light is emitted. That's energy being emitted in the transfer. The LED is designed to allow us to see that light. Depending on the types of materials used, the lenses, etc., we can get a variety of colors of lights. Now, when George W. Bush decided to sign a law that eliminated the old incandescent 100-watt bulbs and bulbs of that type, I, like many people, stocked up on those bulbs because I knew those curly type of fluorescent bulbs were basically hot garbage. They contain trace amounts of hazardous chemicals, which, whatever, but they are too fragile and they give off that horribly sterile white fluorescent light. I like my yellow light, thank you very much. But when LEDs came out, they could tailor the temperature of the light to whatever you wanted. Now I have a large container of old incandescent light bulbs that I just don't know what I'm going to do with. <laughs> Guess I'm just going to let them rot. Anyway, cars following suit have moved heavily away from the old style bulbs to new LEDs. Now you can tell an LED blinker because they're instantly on and instantly off as opposed to the old style bulbs that had a definite brightening and dimming period of time. In the article, they quote Atsushi Yoshida, the designer and lamp development leader at Mazda, stating why they didn't just use the typical LED turn signal, pretty much like everyone else. Quote, I wanted to infuse a sense of life into the turn signal lamp, a feeling that would manifest the concept of car as art. He stated that, quote, LEDs are typically cold and clinical in their sharp on-off switch. He harkened back to a concept that likens the design philosophy behind this innovation to Jinbai Atai, the philosophy used in developing the Mazda MX-5 Miata. That's the little two-seater sports car with a massive cult following. This philosophy translates to horse and rider as one. Like I said, they want the driver to merge with the car for the driving experience to be as natural as breathing, blinking, or walking. 
The article states it as, quote, Mazda's new way of fulfilling a basic automotive function has a clear goal in mind to humanize the automotive experience. Yoshida continued, quote, I wanted to embody Jinbai Itai, the intuitive connection between car and driver, so that even the act of making one turn of the wheel is a human-centric experience. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm getting a little choked up here, just a, just a tad bit weepy. So, as part of that, he wanted to not only merge the driver and car, but also establish a connection with the pedestrian that's looking at the car with the turn signal on to induce a sense of calm and safety. Now, to do this, Yoshida said that the driver's intentions while driving emanates from the heart, so using an EKG of the human heart, he decided to emulate that sort of pulsing with the turn signals. The name given to this turn signal is... uh, ironically cold, the dimming turn signals, or DTS. Kind of get you right here, doesn't it? Yoshida believes that a car should mimic life, and that in a well-designed car, this breath of life will be experienced when you, quote, touch the various elements of that well-designed car in its shape, surface quality, and light. So, I mean, you know, this, this is a beautiful concept. This is why people give their car a name, because it becomes part of the family. And it sounds like the designers at Mazda take that concept to an entirely different level. So why did I find this silly? Well, because when you look at the videos of the turn signals, they look almost identical to the old incandescent bulbs with a brightening period and a dimming period rather than just on and off. I mean, apparently we've come full circle. And yeah, I agree. The glow and the pulse of an old tiny bulb They are more calming, more peaceful, more friendly than the sterility of the LEDs. It wasn't until the third video I watched, one that someone actually took of the Mazda that was sitting in front of them on an actual road, where I noticed that there is a very slight pulse at the peak of brightness. It ramps up from off to bright, makes a very slight pulse from bright to slightly dimmer back to bright, then dims back to off. And I guess that's supposed to mimic the heartbeat. I'll include the link to the YouTube short that I found that probably displays the pulse better than the GIF in the article. So, why did my view change from silly to really interesting? I'd even go so far as to say, elegant? Well, a number of years ago, I read a book entitled Discovery of Design by Donald DeYoung and Derek Hobbs. This book, written in 2010, showed how man constantly steals ideas from nature in order to design the latest innovative products. I mean, nature is amazing. When you look into how certain animals work, like take the giraffe with that long neck that needs a heart that can pump the blood all the way to the top of the head but is so strong that it would blow the head right off the neck when the giraffe bends over if it wasn't for God's design. Look at the bombardier beetle that contains chemicals that will explode when mixed, but has the perfect systems to mix those chemicals perfectly so as to defend itself. Look at the bumblebee that shouldn't be able to fly, to the way plants and animals perfectly interact to produce more plants and animals, and the list goes on. Romans 1, 19-20 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. See, man has an innate connection to nature, not due to the silly theory of evolution, but because 
nature, creation, reflects the glory of the Creator, and we inherently know this to be true. So over the Christmas break, the topic came up briefly of God's election of those to salvation, of how this works with those that have never been contacted by the rest of mankind, those that have never been handed a Bible, that have never even heard the name of Jesus. What happens to them? And the answer is, I don't know. Ultimately, I believe in a perfect, in every way, totally sovereign God. So my understanding is really inconsequential, as I know that whatever God does do is the correct, righteous, holy thing. But as a thought exercise, does man need to speak the name Jesus to be saved, or for those that have never heard, which doesn't include you or nearly the entire world, is the realization that all of this creation demands there be a creator, and the worship of this creator in whatever form that takes, is that acceptable to God? Again, I don't know. But what we do know is that the fact that there is a creator, and it's very clear because of the creation for all of humankind. Unfortunately, most of humanity willfully, purposefully ignores this fact and this knowledge and instead torturously contorts their minds to try to believe anything they can except that there might be a god. Mazda and Yoshida, by their very design, a heartbeat pulse designed into the blinking light of a machine in order to connect driver and machine, pedestrian and machine, they admit, whether they realize it or not, that the design in God's creation cannot be improved upon, that there is something special about the design of humanity that appeals to humanity. This, in a more intense way, is why a large percentage of expectant mothers trying to decide if they should keep or abort their child, when shown the beating heart of their baby on the ultrasound, decide to keep that baby. Yoshida has tried to capture that emotional connection between creator and creation, between machine and the beautiful design of life. So like I said, this is a short segment. This isn't a commercial for Mazda. It's just one of those articles that catches your eye for one reason, and then... As you read it, when applying Christian principles, when applying some biblical knowledge, when just looking at it through the eyes of the Christian, you can see how literally everything has a spiritual component if only you take the time to look. Does anyone else feel like 2022 and 2021 and pretty much 2020 have been a blur? Just me? Can't be just me. I made the comment in 2020 that it felt like I was just hanging on for dear life. Maybe you can relate. I made the comment at the end of 2021 that I felt like I was burning a candle at all three ends. And in 2022, although it's probably the best of the three, it's kind of seemed like I'm a drowning man getting a gulp of air. You know, reprieve. Uh, we're not out of the woods yet with the insanity and not everything went exactly how I'd like it to go. But 2022 was definitely better than the two years previous to it. Now, you may feel differently about those years, or maybe you're one of the minority that wasn't really physically, mentally, or emotionally dinged by the past three years. Lucky you. But I'd say for most of us, it's been a whirlwind. A stinky, nasty, hot whirlwind. So if you're anything like me, it's time to right the ship, undo the damage, restore the balance, nip this in the bud, turn the table, straighten up and fly right, etc., etc., etc. And for me, that means I need to get back to setting some personal goals for 2023. Now, ever since I graduated college, 
somehow and landed a job in my field, we've had mandatory annual goal setting. You may or may not be familiar with this practice, but it's basically laying out, give or take five goals, typically specific to your function, and then another couple personal growth goals, job related or maybe not. And if you're anything like me, and most that are involved in this annual process are, it's hit or miss if you've <laughs> guessed correctly. Oftentimes, priorities or jobs or companies or even career changes happen inside of the year, and those predicted goals you so carefully crafted now are no longer applicable. And that's okay. Life is fluid. The only thing constant is change, right? So I'm under the impression that most companies understand that when you get to the end of the year and not one of your goals is actually complete, well, it's because change has happened, and that's okay. That said, have you ever set goals in your personal life? Pretty much every big-name talker on podcasts, radio, television, or print will give goal-setting advice, and I want to be just like them, so... Uh, so here we are. My best year was in 2019. I had good intentions in 2020 and general basic slothfulness in 2021 and 2022, but something needs to be done moving into 2023 now. Humans should have targets to aim at. With nothing to shoot for, we'll just kind of aimlessly wander through life or at least most of us will. I mean, this is similar in concept to setting a budget. I mean, sure, you can run without a budget, and a lot of people are successful at doing so, but most of us need some guardrails, even if they're a little springy, to aim and track and evaluate and guide our spending habits. Personal goals give us those same guardrails from a personal growth perspective. So in 2019, I developed a method to set my goals, which works very similar to how the Logical Christian Podcast works. It's looking at life, ensuring that that view is through a Christian lens. Otherwise, what's the point? To that end, I think this is a good way to compile some wisdom of others, some tried-and-true practices, and some personal sanctification all into goals for the coming year. Take this for what it's worth, modify it how you'd like, Throw this out and do something completely different, but at least give this and the whole idea of goal setting some thought. Note, this is not New Year's resolutions. Uh, go ahead and do that if you'd like, but personally, I think those are pointless. And statistically speaking, oh, I'm correct, as most of them are broken in a month or two, if they make it that far. No, no, no. These are goals, guidance for the year. So, without further ado, let me present to you my theory on personal goal setting. First, pulling from my work experience, we want to make sure our goals are SMART goals. SMART, S-M-A-R-T, of course, is an acronym for Specific, Measurable, Achievable, Relevant, and Time Sensitive. Again, personally, I hate writing SMART goals but I can't argue the effectiveness in following the guidance in ensuring that they are SMART goals. Briefly explaining these, briefly because they're generally self-explanatory. First, specific. If you have too broad of a goal or too generic of a goal, you have no goal. You have nothing to aim at. This is shooting the gun at the target versus shooting it at the side of the barn that you've hung the target on. A goal of lose weight is a nothing goal. A goal of lose weight to look good in a swimsuit this summer 
is slightly better, but still very broad. It must be specific, which rolls into the next letter, M, measurable. If you can't gauge your progress, how do you know how you're doing? Pulling from the previous example, a goal of losing 25 pounds for swimsuit season is much better than losing weight to look good in a swimsuit. Next is achievable. If you can't realistically hit the goal you've set, then you haven't set a goal, you've set a fail. Losing 25 pounds per month isn't realistic unless your doctor is doctor now. Losing 6 or 8 or 10 pounds a month, depending on your current degree of excess, is a realistic, achievable goal that you can hit, possibly even exceed from time to time. Goals are there to aim at, and even if we don't always hit the bullseye, we should at least have something we can land on the target. Next is R, relevant. Make sure it matters. If you're setting goals that have no relevance in your current or planned future life, you're potentially wasting your time. That said, there is nothing wrong with setting a goal because it's something you want to achieve, even if you can't see the relevance beyond, I want to. Taking a class, learning a skill, learning a language may not have a direct relevance in your life right now or even in the foreseeable future, but it's something you want to do in order to expand your mind and knowledge. Just look closely at goals that don't have a direct, obvious relevance to ensure you truly want it to be a goal. Remember, everything you do takes resources like time and effort and money. And for most of us, all of our resources are finite and limited. You don't want to jeopardize a more important goal striving to accomplish a trivial one. Finally, T, time sensitive. You have to know when you want this goal to be stamped achieved. Lose weight is open-ended. Lose weight for swimsuit season is narrowed down to maybe a three to four month window. Still not really good enough. Lose this weight by May 15th. That's time sensitive. So looking at the goal of losing weight, the goal should be something like lose 25 pounds by May 15th in order to be ready to look smoking by swimsuit season. This gives you a specific goal that's measurable and achievable with a time sensitive component and it's relevant based on what you're desiring. Moving from how to set a goal, we should next look at what to set goals for or what areas of our life we set goals in. For this, I chose to pull from Dave Ramsey, who, if I'm correct, also compiled this information from others. And, and I did this in order to focus areas of life to set my goals. Now, personally, I would recommend a goal in each one of these categories, and I would caution you about making multiple goals in each category. If you set too many goals, you may spread your resources too thin, including spending too much time on just tracking your goals, and you'll get frustrated and you'll quit the entire process, and that's kind of the opposite of what you want to do. It's better to set fewer goals with maybe some backing stretch goals that could be added in if needed rather than to optimistically overcommit yourself. Now, the areas of life that Dave Ramsey recommends setting goals in are finances. This could be saving money, paying off debt, budgeting, maybe for the first time, increasing your income, maybe tithing or giving to charity. He also has spiritual, like reading the Bible, praying, memorizing scripture, or maybe improving your church attendance or your church involvement. Fitness. This could be losing weight or gaining muscle, maintaining your current level of fitness, getting a certain number of steps per day, etc., etc. 
Next is education. Take a class, learn a skill, read a book. Family, calling distant relatives on a regular basis, spending more time with your kids, spending more quality time with a spouse. Next is career. Maybe you want to increase your income or change your job or change careers altogether. Maybe you're looking for a promotion this year. And then finally, social. Interact more with friends or maybe less depending on what you're doing or not doing currently. Maybe you want to attend that monthly gathering at church that you keep seeing pop up in the bulletin or maybe you want to join a team, a sports or other type of team. Now, keep in mind, every goal you make in each one of those categories needs to be a SMART goal. If you don't stick with the SMART goal format, there's a good chance your goals turn into nothing but good intentions. So we looked at the how and we looked at the what, but what I found lacking in 2019 when I was trying to set my goals was the why. And this is a why that goes beyond the relevance in the SMART acronym. That's generally going to be a human earthly type of why. This is where we need to look into the ultimate or eternal why. If we can't tie an eternal why to our goals, then we should evaluate if that goal is one worth pursuing. If the goal of losing weight to get into that swimsuit is to be more attractive to the opposite sex in order to pursue relationships that are strictly called out as sinful in the Bible, maybe it's best we don't. Or maybe we need to look at our motivation for that goal of losing weight and pursue it for the right reason or reasons, such as health or self-control, and repent for our sinful motives and desires. So when thinking about how I could gauge the why, I settled on one of the clearest passages regarding not only the testing of your genuineness of your salvation, but also the areas of sanctification in the life of a Christian. Galatians 5, 22-23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So for each SMART goal in each of the categories I mentioned, I should desire an increase in one or more fruits of the Spirit. Again, those are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The individual that has true salvation will exhibit these nine fruits in his or her life. That said, we can't expect for them all to be equally developed and exhibited. And we can't expect to have zero struggles in these areas. But for the regenerate Christian, these fruits should be growing year over year. So for each written SMART goal in each category, there should be one or more fruits that are improved upon. This is where, at least for me, not all nine must be represented in your goals. It would be great if they were, but for most of us, we have areas of the fruits of the Spirit that need to be improved drastically more than other areas. So as you write your potential goal, work hard to identify the ultimate importance in that goal and write down the fruit or fruits that each goal improves upon. Don't be surprised if the areas you're weakest in, and we all know our most unripened fruits, keeps popping up over and over in your goals. That's actually a good thing. Now make sure you write these goals down. As a nerd engineer, I like to use Excel because I can track and graph and slice and dice what I'm doing month over month. 
You may want to just type them into Word or maybe write them down in a notebook. Really doesn't matter how you do it, but make sure that whatever goals you make are smart, fit into a specific growth area in your life, and have an ultimate purpose. Also, make sure that wherever you write these down, you have enough room to track them month over month until the goal has been reached, which is hopefully at or before the specific time listed in your goal. And let me give this one piece of advice that yeah, it goes somewhat counter to what I've already said. Be willing to have grace and enact a little mercy on yourself if you miss your goal. If all of your goals are so easy you nail and exceed everything in plenty of time before they're due, eh, you've set them too easy. Expect to have a goal or a few goals that you fall short in. That's evidence that you're legitimately striving to better yourself in life. At the same time, you shouldn't fall short in all or most of your goals. That's evidence that you've either set too many goals, or goals that are realistically not achievable. If you see either of these extremes too easy or too hard as you start moving through the year, adjust your goals. That's fine. They're your goals. But don't lose the intent of those goals, the earthly and the ultimate relevance. Goal setting, let me just say this, it can be frustrating and somewhat painful, and it's definitely a learning process. But if you take the time and care when you set them, then you evaluate them, track them, adjust them as needed, and finally analyze the outcomes. After a couple years of goal setting, yeah, you'll pretty much have it down. So over the next week or so, take some time to prayerfully set some goals, and let's see what we can do to better ourselves, improve our relationship with others, as well as our spiritual lives, and ultimately what we can do to further the kingdom. I'll note the various components of how, what, and why in the episode notes for easy reference if you're curious. And over the next week or so, I'll be doing the same thing, goal setting. It's time to get back on track and track myself to make sure I stay there. And then in an upcoming episode, I'll at least share some of the goals I've come up with for myself. Well, I've been thinking about it and uh, yeah, I think we need to do this. Back in November, right before the election, I dropped episode 76 of the Logical Christian Podcast, and that contained episode 9 of our look at the Democrat Party platform, analyzing their take on our education system. Needless to say, it was uh, terrible. I mean, not just terrible, it was communist, okay? I mean, literally communist. The, the education system, communist. All right. I mentioned in there the 45 communist goals for America that were contained in the 1958 W. Cleon Skousen book, probably said his name wrong, entitled The Naked Communist. This list was read into the congressional record by Congressman Albert S. Erlong Jr., a Democrat, Democrat from Florida in 1963. Now, this was done to honor a request by Mrs. Patricia Nordman of DeLand, Florida. She was born in 1934, and for a time, I'm not sure how long, she published what was called the DeLand Courier. Uh, It was described by Mr. Erlong as a paper, quote, dedicated to the purpose of alerting the public to the dangers of communism in America. She was personally described by Mr. Erlong as, quote, an ardent and articulate opponent of communism. She passed away, still in DeLand, Florida, in 2015 at just under 81 years old. Now, please take note that if you or someone you know votes Democrat because, you know, his or her granddaddy was a Democrat, well, in 1963, a Democrat was warning America about the dangers of and the mission of communism. 
today a good chunk of the Democrat Party platform, and many, I'd feel comfortable saying most, believe that communism is the best way to go. Tell me what's changed. Communism? I don't think so. So, over the next, I don't know, between two and infinity episodes, I want to walk through these 45 goals. All of them are relatively short. And just look at where we are today versus where the communists at that time wanted us to go. Uh, Seeing if you've you've listened to any conservative radio or TV or podcast or anything, you've likely heard this. Conservatives positively suck at playing the long game. Now, we're typically looking at the tip of our noses as looking farther out from there is scary and it's hard to do. Now, more often than not, conservatives are playing from behind, generally just trying to scrape up whatever scraps they can for their team, whatever the Democrats have left over for us, while giving just huge tracts of land to the leftists. The left, conversely, is very good at playing the long game. Uh, They will go for years or decades or generations in order to meet their goals. The left is very good at passing evil intentions from generation to generation in order to get where they want to go. Why? I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, how demented and evil do you have to be to feel that it's worth dying knowing you've moved the needle only slightly toward global human enslavement. I'd say pretty evil. So before we get started, I want to give a few pieces of background info regarding where communism falls on the political spectrum. I covered this in episode 74 of the podcast, which contained part seven of our look at the Democrat Party platform. But I want to hit it again here. And then I want to give a very brief background on the horrors of communism. What exactly has communism done for or wrought upon this world. So let's start with the political spectrum. Now, as I did previously, I'm going to link an article from freethepeople.org that gives probably the best explanation of the complete political spectrum that at least I've ever found. Now, although in the U.S. we think of the world of politics to be liberals on the left, moderates somewhere in the middle, and conservatives on the right, from a global political worldview, the entire spectrum doesn't really go left or right. It goes up and down sort of. And to confuse the spectrum more as you travel down, think of down as worse, you know, like traveling down into hell. As you travel down, the spectrum actually converges. So this is actually kind of a giant U shape, but you can't flatten out the U like onto a straight line to try to equate it to the left and the right, the way the U.S. understands the political system. This has to stay in the U shape. As you travel up on the U, the political systems are those that use increasing amounts of persuasion to govern. As you travel down the U, they use greater levels of coercion. The top half of the U, on both the right and the left branches, are the better systems of government, if you're a fan of freedom and liberty and legitimate input by the citizenry. The bottom half of the U on both the right and the left are systems of less freedom, less citizen input, more dictatorial rule, and then both sides converge at the bottom into totalitarianism. On the right half of the U in the top section, we find libertarians at the top, followed by classic liberals, then constitutional conservatives, and finally the constitutional republic, which is what the United States is, despite what everybody says it is. We'll get to that. At least in this chart, 
that's the strongest form of government possible on the libertarian side of things without getting into some dangerous areas. That's where constitutional republic falls. The next step down would then be nationalism. Now, there will be some that won't like me saying this, but in the United States, those on the conservative side routinely dip their toes into a desire for a nationalistic government. I think of this as kind of a flag worship. We pledge allegiance to the flag, but should we? I would personally rather pledge my national allegiance to the Constitution and the rule of law. Whatever. Now, working our way farther down on the right side, we get to fascism next, then a theocracy. And remember, I've said this many times, until Jesus comes back, we don't want a theocracy because we'll screw it up. I mean, really bad. Then we move to Islamofascism, which kind of is my point, and that's an extreme form of fascist theocracy, and then we get to Nazism. Now, this is why the media and the political wonks on the left want to say that Nazism is on the right. It is, but not on the United States scale, on the global scale. Now, moving over to the left side of the U, at the top are the Libertines, then the Civil Libertines. So both Libertarians, which is on the right, and Libertines on the left believe in a hands-off type of government. Just enough government to keep anarchy in check. Barely. But the Libertine side is generally a side that dismisses morals and religious beliefs. A system free from guilt. A system where you can do what you want as long as you're not violating the freedoms of others. And probably in some cases, even if you are. We see this sort of removal of morals and religion and standards uh, running rampant on the U.S. political left right now, and we'll see where this godless system of governments goes as we travel down this left side of the U. Now, continuing on, we next get to democracy. This is what our Democrats, media, and most of our Republicans even say we are without giving it a second thought. But we're not a democracy, or at least... We weren't set up as a democracy. We were set up to directly elect some, then let them represent the people when selecting others, etc. That's not a democracy. That's a representative republic. So then after democracy, traveling down the U is direct democracy, which is literally just rule by the people. Everything goes to the population at large for them to decide. We vote on everything. After that, we move into the lower half of the left side, which is getting into the bad section of the spectrum. We start with social engineering, and then you'll recognize this one, I think, progressivism. Hillary Clinton, a number of years ago, proudly proclaimed herself as a progressive. And this was really the first big name that declared him or herself a progressive since Woodrow Wilson. The term, because Wilson was such a horrible human being and tried to push progressive policies so hard and was so disdained by the people, now the term had to go underground for about a 100 years. That's where it needs to go again, into hiding permanently the term and the philosophy. After progressivism is scientism or eugenics. Now, this is a godless philosophy, notice that, that believe that people are nothing but evolved animals and that the undesirables should be eliminated so as not to taint or propagate their filth across the globe. This was a system put in practice in the early 1900s by the United States. Uh-huh. We are the creators of genocide of groups and types of people that are deemed by the elites to not be worthy of life. 
This included the disabled, the criminal, the retarded, the promiscuous, the homeless, and those lesser-evolved blacks. Now, this is where Margaret Sanger developed her abortion idea from and why Planned Parenthood death mills are largely still in heavily black neighborhoods. She was a massive racist and wanted to eliminate them from the planet. And although I believe the mission today is just to kill as many babies as possible, it's still the black population that's utilizing the baby murdering service at a greater pace than others. Eugenics was noticed by one individual and so admired that he decided to adopt the philosophy and went on to murder six million Jews and millions of others, including gypsies, blacks, disabled, criminal, degenerate, etc., And because Hitler was too bold with his love for eugenics, and the term was so soiled by the Nazi movement, this term also, by necessity, had to disappear. So it changed instead, and now we know it as the field of genetics, in some cases, and also social engineering. It didn't go away, as nothing on the left ever goes away. It just rebadges and then hides. Eugenics is still very alive. I believe it's Denmark that's claimed to have eliminated Down syndrome from their society. Hey, that's great. Except that the way they've done this is they test all unborn babies uh, and nearly all, I don't think they have them all, but nearly all that are diagnosed with Down syndrome likely with a huge amount of error in their testing. If they are tested as positive for Downs, well, they're aborted. Problem solved. (laughs) Uh, No Down syndrome in that country, all using a simple godless system of eugenics. Back to the spectrum. Moving farther down the left side, we get to dictatorship of the proletariat, which is essentially a form of top-down Marxist-style control. The government controls means of production and the population. They have, you know, some nice sham elections, things like that. Then we get to socialism, then communism, and then Nazism and communism. They meet at the bottom of that U at totalitarianism. Keep in mind, there may be a variety of names of systems But to go from progressivism to socialism is really, in in all reality, just a small step. And there's another small step to get to communism, another small step to get to totalitarianism. So as you get to the bottom of the U, the two systems become more similar to each other than they are to the systems above them on their respective sides. So Nazism, although not on the side of socialism, is literally translated as national socialism. It's a socialist system, but focused, at least it was in the beginning, on socialism internal to the country or countries that follow it. Communism is also socialism, but it's one with a goal of global dominance and propagation of the socialist or Marxist ideology across the world. Some quotes and phrases to keep in mind as we're looking at this political spectrum. Concerning socialism, quote, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. See, in a perfect sinless world, this system could theoretically work, but in a system of sin, greed, selfishness, pride, envy, etc., etc., this can never and has never worked anywhere, and it will never work anywhere. It's impossible. Now, Karl Marx said, quote, Religion is the impotence of the human mind to deal with occurrences it cannot understand. I guarantee you've heard a similar saying to this in the past. Again, it's a godless philosophy, Marxism, a godless philosophy, and it's actually a system that just openly mocks God. 
on the bottom of the political spectrum chart I'm using, it has a quote regarding totalitarianism. Quote, to keep you is no benefit. To lose you is no loss. Oh, and can you feel the love tonight? Yeah, yeah, you're, you're nothing. You're just a, you and I, big nothing. Keep in mind, Nazism and communism is just one step above totalitarianism. The reality is, in those systems, you only matter if you don't cause problems and if you can be productive. If at any point you consume more than you produce, eh, your usefulness has pretty much come to an end. The famed playwright George Bernard Shaw was an avowed socialist, and I'd say he was probably really more of a Marxist, a communist, a eugenicist. Well, he said this, quote, I object to all punishment whatsoever. I don't want to punish anybody, but there are an extraordinary number of people who I want to kill. Not in any unkind or personal spirit, but it must be evident to all of you. You must all know half a dozen people, at least, who are of no use in this world, who are more trouble than they are worth. And I think it would be a good thing to make everybody come before a properly appointed board, just as he might come before the income tax commissioners and say every five years or every seven years, just put them there and say, sir or madam, now will you be kind enough to justify your existence? If you can't justify your existence, if you're not pulling your weight in the social boat, if you are not producing as much as you consume, or perhaps a little more, then clearly we cannot use the big organization of our society for the purpose of keeping you alive, because your life does not benefit us, and it can't be of very much use to yourself. <laughs> These are the philosophies of the Democrat, the Socialist, the Communist branch of the political spectrum. Now, before continuing in our look at uh, communism, I want you to keep in mind that the system of government the United States was set up with is the Constitutional Republic, the upper side of the right-hand branch of the U. For decades now, it's been hammered into our skulls that we're a democracy, which is on the upper side of the left-hand branch. Now, there are some general differences between governance styles of the two, but the largest differences are first the removal of God, faith, and morals. They don't want to have to work through any sort of theocratic system in order to get to their goal, which in America, that system would undoubtedly be a form of Christianity, which has liberty and freedom at its core, specifically through salvation in Christ. Second, this allows the traversing down to socialism, Marxism, communism, and ultimately totalitarianism much easier, as it doesn't have to pass through some sort of nationalism, which for better or worse is a love of country, which would mean things like closed borders, which wouldn't help those leftists reach their goal, as right now at least they must massively dilute the conservatives in the United States with those that don't believe in capitalism or the Constitution, so as to use the constitutional system to peacefully enact a hostile takeover of the country. So, the first and probably most crucial step that has been and is currently being very carefully enacted on our country is the jump across the U from the right side to the left side. From there, I think you likely currently see, but definitely over the next few weeks, you'll fully understand the rapid slide down the left-hand branch toward communism that we're currently experiencing. So, 
with the explanation of the full political spectrum and the understanding that although Nazism is technically on the right, it actually has more in common with communism and socialism, which is on the left, than it does with capitalism or libertarianism or constitutionalism, we can now move into what communism has done for or to the world in its relatively short life of only about 100 years. At a high level, communism in 100 years is responsible for 100 million dead. That's the officially agreed upon estimation. Keep in mind, we're talking about places like Russia, China, North Korea, Cuba, and the like, so they're not exactly transparently publishing their data. Also remember that Hitler and the Nazis killed 6 million Jews, a few million others, and until relatively recently, we have vowed to never forget these atrocities. Now, please don't think I'm minimizing the Holocaust in any way here. Nothing could be farther from the truth. But communism has killed, through various means, easily over 10 times that of the entire death toll of the Nazis. And we have likely more elected officials today than we know of that think communism, or at least the step before it, socialism, is the best of the best systems. Now, that seems, I don't know, kind of like a bad thing? A direction that logically, sanely thinking Americans you would think would like to change. Now, the two largest causes of death in these communist countries appears to be the violent subjugation of the people, you know, keep them in check, uh, or starvation. <laughs> Communists are very good at taking over all industries, including the food production, and totally screwing things up to the point that there isn't enough of anything for anyone anymore. Now, when that applies to toilet paper, you have a problem. When it applies to food, the concern escalates exponentially. So to wrap up this episode as our lead-in into the 45 communist goals for the United States, let's take a brief look at some, only a quick sampling, of the atrocities that have been committed under the banner of communism. So one of the largest that likely most of you have never heard of is called the Holodomor, which took place in the late 1920s into the early 1930s. The world had just come through a depression. Now, we in America called it the Great Depression because our president during that time, FDR, was a socialist or a progressive, and just about everything he did made it worse. He was awful. Thus, the world had a depression. We had a Great Depression. <laughs> anyway, after the Depression, Stalin emerged as the communist dictator of the Soviet Union. And as communists do, he took control of um, pretty much everything. As part of this, in 1928, he instituted collectivized farming. Basically, he took control of the means of food and livestock production, deciding who should get what, exporting massive quantities so he could use the money generated from the sales of these goods to pay for his effort to industrialize the USSR. Farmers weren't really fond of this idea, so they resisted by killing off their livestock, hiding food, and resisting the collective farms. Wait a minute. Collective farms, collective bargaining, collective farms. Why do these sound similar? Ah, it's probably nothing. Anyway, so Stalin enforced his desires using confiscation and incarceration and execution where needed. Now, with the skilled farmers either arrested or killed, the means of production, specifically in the Ukraine, dropped dramatically. Starvation and disease started to set in. Those that didn't escape Ukraine at the very beginning were walled in by armed soldiers, and then anyone trying to escape was shot. Anyone caught stealing food as they were starving was shot on sight. 
So people turned to uh, cannibalism to try to survive. By 1934, 4 million people in Ukraine had died from starvation, and then an unknown number had been killed from stealing, running, or resisting in whatever fashion. The word Holodomor roughly translates to the concept of starving to death. Stalin and his communist horde rationalized the very well-known genocide, they knew what was going on, of the Ukrainian people because he was afraid of them getting in the way of his progression of communism in the Soviet Union. It kind of gives a little background to the current battle between Ukraine and Russia, doesn't it? Next, born out of World War II, North Korea relied heavily on imports of practically everything from the Soviet Union and China. When the USSR fell apart in 1991, that aid now only came from China. At the death of Kim Il-sung and his son Kim Jong-il taking over in 1994, the cracks in the dam started joining up. Failure was upon them. Sources of food and energy were too small, both inside the country and what was being imported into the country, but Kim Jong-il could not take a chance in admitting that the communist system doesn't work, so he just pressured the farmers to produce more, which was impossible. Kim Jong-il's chance came when floods devastated most of the agricultural sector, so he appealed to the UN for food supplies due to the flood. The flood was not really the problem. The communist system was the problem, but he used the flood when speaking with the UN. Now, the UN obliged and they sent aid. The majority of this food stayed with the army and the city of Pyongyang. Next, the government officials got their cut and they hoarded food supplies. And finally, whatever was left over, it was scattered out amongst the people. Three million people that we know about died from starvation due to the compassionate communist system, and an entire generation of severely malnourished children are now adults that are dealing with severe mental and physical retardation of their growth and development due to this. Following World War II and a Chinese civil war that ended in 1949, Mao Zedong began his plan of rebuilding China. In 1958, Mao implemented his five-year plan, Build Back Better. Oh, wait, oh, it's my bad. No, 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 no. Mao's plan was called the Great Leap Forward. Not a whole lot different. Now, just like Stalin, he forced farmers into collective farms in order to produce enough grain to feed the country. This was largely entire families just manually farming the land by force. As this plan was being put into place, Mao got the idea that there were too many sparrows, and those sparrows were eating too much grain. Grain he wanted to use for the people. So, he implemented an order to kill all sparrows. I mean, this is communism, right? Extreme measures, very little thought, believing that all they need to do is just dictate their way to prosperity and power. Well, the Chinese very nearly succeeded, with all citizens killing sparrows anytime they came across one. Nearly all the sparrows were wiped out. So, good deal, right? Well, this of course created a free-for-all for the little bugs that really do like to eat the wheat, since no sparrows were there to eat them. This resulted in a famine the next year that killed at least 78 million people due to starvation. From 1975 to 1979, the Khmer Rouge, under the leadership of Pol Pot, killed approximately 2 million people in Cambodia due to starvation, exhaustion, execution, etc., etc., all in the name of propping up communism. 
So, according to the book, The Black Book of Communism, civilians killed by starvation, execution, etc. These are civilians in various communist countries are numbered as follows. One million in Vietnam, one million in Eastern Europe, 1.5 million in Ethiopia, two million in North Korea, two million in Cambodia, 20 million in the Soviet Union, 65 million in China. And it's widely agreed that these numbers, especially regarding China and Russia, are dramatically lower than what the reality is. So are you getting the idea that communism is uh, probably not what we want in the United States or anywhere? So starting in the next part of our look at the 45 communist goals for America, we'll start walking down the list of goals that was read into the congressional record 60 years ago and compare that with what we see today going on in our country. The Democrats, liberals, progressives, socialist, communists, and or totalitarians are patient Evil is patient. They're just fine with playing the long game and dying with the satisfaction that they move the world just that much closer to total domination. Christians and conservatives, we really need to play the same game. We don't, but we need to. A slow and steady push back against evil. Now, I don't know if we're in the final days or years before Christ comes back, or if we have millennia still, but what we can't do is sit on our hands twiddling our thumbs. Wait a minute. Don't do that. You'll get a surprise you're not wanting. We can't just stand around staring at the sky. We must be about the business of going and telling. And as we're going, telling. We need to be in the business of voting and taking notice of what's going on and working in the systems that we have. But in all reality, capitalism or constitutionalism, those aren't the antidotes to communism, at least not long term. The gospel is. But as any strategist will tell you, we must know what we're up against if we're going to fight against it. So how far have we gone? What have we done or allowed? And which direction do we need to push? Answers to all of those questions will become clear in the next however many segments in our look at the 45 goals of communism for America. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.